Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. This resolution embraces the goals and provisions of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. It calls on the United States to uh, to lead a global effort to move the world back from the nuclear brink and to prevent a nuclear war. That is Representative Jim McGovern talking about his efforts to deal with our nuclear weapons problem. The issue is they are armed and funded by the Ukrainian state. They have tank units, they have artillery units. So here we have, you know, very modern anti-tank weapons probably provided by Britain, right? Probably the guys being, um, you can see the Azov logo. So it's not only supported by the Ukrainian state, it's also being directly armed by Western powers. And that is Eris Rusinov during an interview with Freddie Sayers on Unheard TV, talking about Nazi influence in Ukraine. And we will hear more from both of them and more. But first, my name is Jim Walgamuth and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country. Thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you that keeps Radio Free Nashville going. And as a result, this radio show is then picked up by Pacifica Radio Network so that Harvey and I are heard across the country. So if you think this is important, just go to RadioFreeNashville.org and click on the donate button and keep Harvey and I on the air in every time zone. Oh, also, if you support the work of Veterans for Peace, go to our site, VeteransForPeace.org. All right, the mainstream media, YouTube, Twitter, and other platforms are censoring voices of activism and dissent, uh, but not us. We will continue to share those voices who stand up against the establishment, who stand up against the military, industrial, congressional, media, corporate complex, who stand up for us, the global us. So last week, we remembered JFK's speech on peace and reflecting on how disappointed he would be in our lack of progress with regard to peace and disarmament. But we thought we would just follow up quickly with some words of action from people trying to accomplish what JFK initiated. In this clip, Denise Duffield of Back from the Brink talks about that effort and then introduces Jim McGovern, congressman from Massachusetts, who talks about H.R. 77, House Resolution 77, and what you can do to help. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I am Denise Stuffield, Associate Director of Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles, and I serve on the steering committee of Back from the Brink, bringing communities together to abolish nuclear weapons. The topic of our event today, growing support for nuclear abolition, is really what Back from the Brink is all about. And one way we're doing that this year is by organizing and advocating for HRES 77, a congressional resolution that was introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives by Representative Jim McGovern, who we are delighted to welcome here with us tonight. Before we get started, I'd like to say just a few words about Back from the Brink. Back from the Brink is a U.S.-based coalition working on a multi-year campaign to abolish nuclear weapons and advance a set of common sense policy solutions that can help prevent the real and growing threat of nuclear war. We were formed in 2017 after the adoption of the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons as a vehicle to build public support and political will nuclear abolition in the United States. We organize in communities because we know that our members of Congress, whose voices and votes impact the executive branch, aren't likely to act on this issue unless they're hearing about it from we the people, their constituents who are demanding action, people who live and work in the communities they are elected to represent. In other words, people like you, all of us here tonight. Back from the Brink gives any individual, organization, or elected official the opportunity and means to get involved and make a difference. We are largely volunteer-led with the steering committee composed of representatives of our coalition partners, a mix of national and local grassroots organization. We have been endorsed by over 400 peace, environmental, health, science, faith, policy, and justice organizations, and we've organized 15 community hubs throughout the country. 
Our policy solutions have been endorsed by numerous civic leaders and experts, over 300 local and state officials, and through the effort of so many Back from the Brig activists and organizations, 77 U.S. municipalities, counties, and state bodies that have voted to adopt resolutions supporting our platform. And just recently, 154 organizations from across the country signed the letter we organized endorsing HRES 77. And thanks to Representative McGovern and many of you, Back from the Brink's policy solutions are also officially supported by 26 members of Congress who've co-sponsored HRES 77 to date, and we're really just getting started. And as we'll discuss tonight, HRES 77 calls on the United States to embrace the goals and provisions of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and to adopt Back from the Brink's policy agenda. It provides a critical opportunity as an advocacy and organizing vehicle for folks to urge their House representative to support nuclear abolition, and importantly, to also organize other groups, leaders, and cities in their community to advocate for HRES 77 as well. It's helping to cultivate real leadership on this issue within Congress, which is one of our key goals. We know from past experience, even if a vote never gets voted on, as support grows, more and more people in Congress start paying attention, focusing on the issue. It becomes a subject of discussion and debate, and it can force the administration to take notice. And it gives all of us a very a concrete thing to ask of our members of Congress. Finally, as you know, growing support for nuclear abolition has never been more urgent. The threat of nuclear war is greater now, perhaps, than it's ever been. Yet it's also a time of many other serious crises, climate, economic, environmental, many racial and social justice concerns, all of which intersects with, with nuclear weapons. It's our job to make nuclear weapons visible and demand action while also finding common cause with other movements and working together for a safer, more just world. Representative Jim McGovern, who we are delighted to welcome here with us tonight. Thank you, Denise, and uh, thank you to everybody who's part of this effort. Um, I can't thank you enough for all of your work on HRES 77, the uh, resolution that I introduced on January 31st with my good friend and colleague Earl Blumenauer from Oregon. Uh, and as you all know, uh, this resolution embraces the goals and provisions of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. It calls on the United States to, uh, to lead a global effort to move the world back from the nuclear brink and to prevent a nuclear war. Uh, and it asks the U.S. to actively pursue and conclude negotiations on nuclear arms control agreements, including with Russia and with China. Uh, to renounce the, the option of first use of nuclear weapons, to end the president's sole authority to launch a nuclear attack, uh, to take the U.S. Uh, to take U.S. nuclear weapons off hair trigger alert, and to cancel the uh, nuclear modernization program. You know, Congressman Blumenau and I have been circulating a dear colleague uh, letter asking our colleagues in the House to, to join us as co-sponsors. Currently, the bill, as uh, Denise mentioned, is 26. Uh, co-sponsors, including myself. Uh, that's already more than twice the number we had in the last Congress, and we've just gotten started. Um, I, I see your good work every time I add a new co-sponsor. Co we'll, we'll, we'll add a couple of members back to back from Maryland, and then a pair from New Jersey will join. Next thing, Illinois, California members are asking to, to be added. And there's the ongoing campaign happening in my home state of Massachusetts. It's all around the country. Everywhere you campaign, it shows up here in Washington uh, in new co-sponsors. And so your engagement on these issues is incredibly important. Right now, uh, we have the president of Belarus announcing that there are nuclear weapons for everyone who will join the Russian-Belarus alliance. Kazakhstan is listening. So are others. North Korea uh, is continuing to test uh, missile launches. Iran is close to having weapon-grade weapons grade uranium. And the U.S. and Russia are modernizing and expanding their arsenals. So we need to hit the brakes and, and throw this car in reverse now, uh, not tomorrow or the day after. The fact that each of you is out there talking to your friends and neighbors, engaging uh, local city councils, your state legislators, and your elected members of Congress is critically important. If people don't re-engage on stopping the nuclear buildup and proliferation of weapons, we can toss the doomsday clock because doomsday will be here. Uh, but I'm an optimist, and I know that we can make a difference today because we're all, and we've, we've we, because we've all made a difference before. And so I'm grateful to be able to play a key role in your campaign. I thank you for your support of HRES 77. 
Sean, I'm, I'm happy to try to respond to questions. What do you say to, to, to those who say, is this now really the time to be putting forth um, ideas and policy proposals that you know, really lay out a path toward nuclear risk reduction and ultimately global dis nuclear disarmament in the midst of this war and, and Belarus and other, all these, these things that you just mentioned. It's precisely because world tensions are so high that this is the right time to do it. I mean, uh, I think if things were calm and everybody was holding hands and singing Kumbaya, we were all getting along with each other, and maybe the urgency wouldn't be there as much. But I think we're, we're seeing um, that, you know, we're in a very, very um, perilous moment. I mean, we mentioned the Belarus-Russian alliance and, you know, the promise of nuclear weapons. We're, we're hearing more and more about using tactical nuclear weapons uh, by Russia and the um, in the war uh, in Ukraine, I mean, the talk of not just build nuclear buildup, but using nuclear weapons is just more commonplace. So this is the moment. And I know, you know, tensions are high between us and Russia and between us and China and us and Iran, but, but this is the moment when, you know, maybe we need to reach out and engage more directly on the issue of, uh, of nuclear weapons. Um, and, and maybe in the course of those discussions, we can kind of alleviate some of these tensions. But but this is the moment, right? Uh, precisely because things are so tense, because the world is so chaotic, and because people are rattling the sabers and, and even talking about using nuclear weapons. So it's urgent that we engage members of Congress. Let me just say one other thing. The reason why this grassroots effort is, is so important is because I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, not only are nuclear weapons and how we control them and abolish them being talked about on a regular basis. We can't even get people to talk seriously about reducing, you know, the size of our military budget. And, you know, they're, they're trying to balance the budget, balancing on the backs of poor people mostly, but the military budget is left untouched. It actually goes up. And I've, I, I said on the floor today, we, we need a new definition of national security. We need to start talking to our politicians about this. It's more than about bullets and bombs, right? It is about the quality of life we have for our people. It's education, it's healthcare, it's housing, it's making sure people have enough to eat. So we, this is an opportunity because of all the tensions for us to kind of redirect the conversation, move away from militarism, and they get serious about moving toward the abolition of nuclear weapons. The bottom line is we, we have families, we have kids, we, we care about our neighbors, we care about the, our country, our planet. Uh, so we can make the case that, especially during these times of budgetary challenges, there's a lot of savings to be had here if we if we do this right. Uh, and the money is that we're not spending modernizing our nuclear capabilities or building more nuclear weapons can, can go to other things, including deficit reduction, if that's where the conservatives want, want to put it. I think there are a lot of people who are, are sympathetic to what we're talking about here today, who we can bring into the coalition, who have some influence with some of these people. Um, and then, you know, and if that doesn't work, you know what? We we got to challenge these members of Congress. That's right. I mean, you know, I mean, it, I mean, it, I mean. The bottom line is, I always tell my constituents. I mean, I work for you. You don't work for me. If if you get to the if I get to the point where I'm not representing your values or what you care about, you you need to vote for somebody else. You need to elect somebody else. Um, that that's the responsibility of citizens. So. So maybe the spirit that JFK was talking about 60 years ago is not dead. Maybe there are people working on peace. So call your congressman. Tell him to get on board to co-sponsor Jim McGovern's HR 77. Okay? All right. Harvey? And yeah, well, did you read the article in the Times? No. I No. Yeah, I read it, so I didn't know if they were even going to mention it, but they did, and they really had the same take on it that I did, so I was pretty excited about that. Okay. So, All yeah, right. I think definitely we need to, that's a good setup for it because it just raises the issue is nobody has really given any kind of a factual picture of, of the, what the significance is of neo-Nazism in Ukraine. And uh, all they say is the president is Jewish. That that means nothing. <laughs> I mean, so what? <laughs> I know. And the thing is, we are providing these people with yeah. funding. 
with weapons. Yes. And they're connected with all these other fascist movements in Europe. Who knows if they're providing them with some of these weapons, those weapons, you know, they disappear. Exactly. And I couldn't help but think about us arming the Mujahideen. Right. uh, And how that worked out for Mm -hmm. us in the long run. Yeah. Right. So, well, let's listen to Crystal and Sager. Okay. And uh, then we'll go into, then, then we'll have a couple of chuckles and we'll go on to the next clip. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, speaking of uh, Thomas Gibbons Snap, he actually wrote a decent story, but I can clearly see the heavy hand of the editors. Let's go ahead and put it up there on headline Nazi symbols on Ukraine's front lines highlight authority issues of history. This, guys, we're not joking, is literally both siding Nazism. They say the decision by some Ukrainian soldiers to wear patches with Nazi icons threatens to reinforce Russian propaganda used to justify the invasion. It could also give symbols mainstream life after the West's decades-long efforts to eliminate them. And effectively, what they try and do here, Crystal, is say, yeah, there are battalions inside of Ukraine, which are basically far-right Nazis and that, you know, venerate Nazi ideology. Now, let's be very clear so that this doesn't get clipped in some ridiculous context. Nobody is saying that Zelensky is a Nazi or that the Ukrainian government are Nazis or that the vast majority of the Ukrainian military are Nazis. However, it is factually correct that there are some people who are neo-Nazis who are in the Ukrainian military, which is used as a pretext by Russia to invade uh, Ukraine. That does not make it okay to invade Ukraine, but it is just simply a fact that these battalions and exist inside of the Ukrainian government. And what they try to do in this story is basically say, yeah, it's true. There are a couple of, uh, you know, militias and all of these, but it's complicated. You know, they're not technically real Nazis or, you know, actually it's justifying Russian propaganda. I mean, it, it's, it truly is stunning um, that it, it's stunning that they are trying to both side it and not, you know, it's like if you're going to report on it, just tell the truth. There are yeah. battalions and militia members inside Ukraine yeah. attached to the Ukrainian military funded by the U.S. government who are Nazis. You can be okay with that or not. Many people are okay with that. But the problem is, is what? that many people don't even know about it. <laughs> that's, that's okay. So there's a lot of layers yeah. of issues with this article. Number one, the issue they point to with this isn't that U.S. taxpayers are funding some amount of Nazis in Ukraine. That's not their takeaway, which seems like a pretty obvious takeaway and something we should all be thinking about and concerned about and at least weighing into these decisions. Their takeaway is that the presence of these symbols might give Russia a talking point. That's their concern. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, in terms of the both sidesing Nazism, I love this line here. Um, Questions over how to interpret such symbols are as divisive as they are persistent, not just in Ukraine. In the American South, some have insisted that today, the Confederate flag symbolizes pride, not its history of racism and secession. Let me just pause you there. Can you imagine the New York Times saying that about the Confederate flag in any other circumstance? Never. Then they go on to say, I love this, the swastika was an important Hindu symbol before it was co-opted by the Nazis. That's true. Now, do you think the Ukrainians that are wearing this in the Azov Battalion are doing it out of respect for Hindu peace traditions? Like, this is yes. absurd. It's ridiculous. It turns out they love the Vedas. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, the, the symbology that I'm no expert in like Nazi symbology, but what they're using here is like, you know, some insignia that was associated with like the worst of the Nazis that were guarding concentration camps and stuff. And they're trying to wave this away. It's like, well, maybe it, it's about the Hindu part of not of the swastika, not the Nazi part. It's like, okay, y'all. They also go through a long you know, diatribe about the history of the Nazi invasion of Ukraine. And and this is factual that initially people viewed them as potential liberators because because they suffered under, you know, some of the, the uh, totalitarianism in the Soviet Union. But then they had to go ahead and throw in a line, which is also true, that they then helped the Nazis, some Ukrainians, and, you know, were also complicit in atrocities that were created there. It's like, what part of this justifies and makes it okay for you to be wearing Nazi imagery at this point? What part of it separates you from that, you know, horrific tradition history? Um, and so it, it's really quite an astonishing article to read this in its why... totality. Like they have to acknowledge the reality that this is happening in some significant level, 
but the layers of justification and cope that they go through to make it like, yes, yeah, it's, it's Nazism, mm-hmm. but it's really not that bad. It's okay. Is um, pretty incredible. You know, some Americans just have the most naive view of history. Uh, this is my immigrant speaking um, because it's just like they really believe that history began in like 1991 or whatever, whenever Ukraine became a country, as you just pointed to. Yeah, guess what? And look, I mean, you can somewhat understand it. You know why they supported the Nazis when they invaded? Because they hated Stalin and they literally had a famine. It was terrible. So I'm like, yeah, intellectually, I can get that. Also, it's not like they uh, it's not like they loved them the entire time. Basically, after the Nazis started hanging them, then they started fighting back against everybody and they wanted independence, which is, you know, okay, a noble, I guess, idea. But also, yeah, look, there's a deep history of anti-Semitism and of anti-Jewish sentiment in the region, well predating Nazism. Many American Jews um, whose families came here came in the late 1900s or in the early 1900s after horrific pogroms, specifically in Ukraine. Um, and in that region, I know many uh, actually families who are right. descendants of that time. None of it is to denigrate the Ukrainian regime or say that they currently, you know, hold those uh, ideas. Only to say history is complicated. These areas of yeah. the world are not, you know, it's not America. Not the whole world is America. And most people in this country are frankly so terribly traveled, badly read, or just have naive, like naive ideas. That they have no idea how the rest of the, how the old world really does conduct itself and thinks in terms of generations and not just in terms of uh, you know like whatever what happened last week. It's a very American idea, to be honest. Well, it's also like okay, so in the beginning when you're starving because of Stalin, you know mm-hmm. you can understand all right yeah. reading the Nazis as liberators. Sure, but you are no longer starving under the thumb of Stalin. Now you have the benefit of history to know what a horror and an atrocity this was. So I don't know that that original view of what was going on there really justifies the continued embrace of Nazi symbols and ideology. So, um, yeah, again, I cannot imagine New York Times writing many of these phrases in any other context and trying to both sides Nazism or trying to say, you know, Confederate flag, like it's complicated. We get it. So it was it was pretty wild to see. And then that the takeaway isn't, hey, guys, maybe, you know, we should consider the fact that we are not arming some number of Nazis. Again, not everybody, not Zelensky, not even the majority, not the overwhelming, not, nothing like that. But some number of Nazis we are arming. That's not the takeaway from the article. Pretty incredible. Yep. So, Harvey, you read the article. Oh, the Times article. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't get it. The Times, I mean. Well, I mean, what's your takeaway is- from the article? My takeaway was the guy writing the article knew what he had to say if he wanted to get his article printed. Yeah. <laughs> so now who was writing the article? This guy, this journalist that they referred to earlier, Thomas, whatever his name is. Gibbons. Gibbons or somebody Giffins. Gibbons Smith. It was terrible. It was not journalism. Right. It was, okay, you saw this, but here's what it means, you know. And uh, not to worry, because it's not really, it doesn't mean anything. You know, these are just patches on uniforms or something. You know, yeah. you're supposed to think of it as a big deal. That's yeah. why I'm glad we found this interview from Unheard. Yeah. Like, like un, not part of the herd, right? Yeah, yeah. not part of That's the herd. That's a British news source. And the fellow that they interviewed, Aris Rosinos, is a British journalist and author. Uh, he's been awarded the 2013 Rory Peck Award for news uh, for his report on the Battle of Gao and in Mali. He's also uh, covered the Arab Spring extensively. He's he's been with ISIS and traveled with uh, uh, covered ISIS, covered Libya. Uh, I mean, he's a very accomplished journalist. Mm-hmm. He's interviewed by the uh, executive editor of Unheard. And uh, to me, this is the first time I've really heard well explained uh, overview of the role of the neo-Nazis in Ukraine and, and uh, other, in other uh, countries in Europe. But uh, to me, it gave the best assessment of of the influence that these groups have, you know, it's not in their numbers necessarily, but mm-hmm. they have been given some 
significant uh, roles in, especially in the uh, in the military service. But to, to understand the risk we're taking by funding and arming these groups and uh, giving them legitimacy, or at least the way that Ukrainian government's giving them legitimacy, we need to understand, you know, what the risks are. And I think this fellow really lays it out there in a way that. I learned a lot I didn't know until I heard this. And I think mm -hmm. most of us could say the same. Because after listening to Crystal and Seiger, even though, you know, they pointed out a lot of uh, interesting stuff, they still were not clear for me as far as they tried to lessen the impact of the neo-Nazis. And so that was a question. They, they don't know. And no. so... Uh, you know, so they were saying, well, they don't have the numbers and they, they may not have the influence. And so that's all well and good. But I mentioned about the Mujahideen and how that really backfired on us when we were funding them and weaponizing them against the Russians. And so here we are again. And if we are giving weapons, if the taxpayers are spending money to give weapons, they really need to know who they're giving these weapons to. And so, Congress had prohibited weapons or any funding to the Azov Battalion for a long yeah. time before it all changed under Biden. I think this guy is really worth hearing out. This is this is the intro from from uh, YouTube in March of 15, March fifteenth, twenty twenty two. Unheard interviews, Eris Rosinos. When Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine, under the it was under the guise of quote denazifying the country. But are there really Nazis in Ukraine, or is this just a story spun by the Kremlin? Iris Rusinos joins Freddie Sayers, who is the editorial director of Unheard, the British news service, to unpick this contentious topic and seek some insight into Ukraine's far right factions. So let's let's take a look and let's listen to him. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. So Vladimir Putin has given as his main reason for invading Ukraine the need to denazify the country. Understandably, the Western media is careful about this topic because they don't want to add any fuel to the fire or give any cover for his reason for invading. But what's the truth? Is there a Nazi problem in Ukraine? We're here with Aris Rusinos, a unheard contributor. You've actually spent time inside Ukraine with the neo-Nazi components, and you're able, hopefully, in the next half hour, to give us a sense of what the truth is. Clearly, it's not a reason to invade a country, but what is, in your estimation, the reality of the Nazi problem in Ukraine? It's obviously very... Uh controversial, very contested topic in a very heated media space at the moment. So I think it's important to emphasize that Putin's claim fundamentally is that in 2014 there was a, a fascist coup when he's talking about the, the, the Maidan uh, revolution. And he claims that since 2014, Ukraine has been essentially run by a, a neo-Nazi government. That's obviously absolutely not true. That's not the case. Um, but there is a danger because Russia uses this, you know, for propaganda purposes. There's a danger to overcorrect too much, not to give him ammunition and to deny that there's any kind of, you know, neo-Nazi or extreme right component. That's not true. So, like, you know, even on, on uh, listening to the news on BBC Radio 4 the other day, they were saying, they're talking about Putin's baseless accusation that the Ukrainian state supports Nazis. And... That's not a basis accusation. So the Ukrainian state does support Nazis? There are groups like uh, the Azov Regiment uh, who are, yeah, who do have fundamentally a neo-Nazi ideology. Um, they were founded in 2014 by Andriy Bilecki. Uh, during the Maidan Revolution, they took part very actively fighting the riot police. Uh, overthrowing. Who's Andriy Bilecki? He's a Ukrainian neo-Nazi. I mean, he, he was a member of a, a neo-Nazi, he was a leader of a neo-Nazi group called Patriot of Ukraine. And in um, what sense are they neo-Nazi? Because this is a phrase that's kind of bandied around. What does it actually mean in a Ukrainian context? You know, in the past few years, like almost, almost everything, uh, kind of rightward of conservative has been called fascist or Nazi, right? But in 
in a very specific uh, sense, they are literally Nazis. In that, so like, um, you know, like there's a there's a quote from Belitsky back from his time in Patriot of Ukraine um, from I think 2010, when he says that Ukraine's mission is to lead the white race to fight against the the Semite led Untermenschen of, of of the world. That does sound quite Nazi. It sounds quite Nazi. It's an ethnic white supremacist vision. That's their politics, is it? That they want some kind of restoration of a white-only culture? Or? So I've spent time with um, Elena Semenyaka, who's Azov, the Azov Movement's international director, who's their kind of linchpin for coordinating with far-right and extreme-right groups across Europe and in uh, North America. Um, and she sees Azov's mission as part of a, a spiritual revival of Europe and the West. So uh, the idea is that, you know, the liberal order is crumbling, that it's weak, that it shouldn't exist, and that Europe should be reconquered. I mean, they had a uh, they had a, an event space called Reconquista in, in Kiev that, you know, that speaks to this idea of a reconquest of Europe away from liberalism. So they want a restoration of kind of ultra-conservative values, expunging immigrants or yeah, no, gays? Yeah, or what's no, the... no immigrants, no non-whites. Azov has a strong kind of neo-pagan aspect, so... Um, there are other far-right and extreme-right uh, units in Ukraine, uh, militias in Ukraine that have a kind of strong orthodox ideology. Orthodox. Yeah, Eastern Orthodox. Azov are essentially neo-pagan. Like they, you know, they're against Christianity. They, they uh, use a lot of kind of you know, Germanic, Norse pagan imagery in their, in their uh, ceremonies. Yeah, we've um, actually got some recruitment videos yeah. from Azov. Let's play them and, and have a look. We get a sense of that. So what are we seeing here? Yeah, so this is one of their kind of torchlit uh, ceremonies. They do that for new recruits and also uh, they do that to kind of do farewell send-offs to, you know, dead fighters who've been killed fighting the Russians and fighting the separatists. This is uh, Karpatska Sitch, who I met in, they weren't very friendly to me, I met them in, uh, in western Ukraine, in the far west, in the Carpathian region. They also fight in the east, they also have support from the government. Even when I was in Kiev last, a few years ago, in the main shopping street in Kiev, there's a, there's a kind of, poster celebrating, you know, their Karpatska Sitch's uh, uh, efforts fighting the Russians in the East. But they are just objectively neo-Nazis. Like if you go to the town they're based in... I mean, it almost looks like a kind of ISIS Yeah, it looks far more like video. an ISIS video than anything you see in, you know, in, in Western Europe, certainly. You can see the Azov shield, so they've got the Wolfsangel uh, rune, which was also used by the... Um, SS Das Reich division, and I don't know if you can see behind it on the shield, there's the black sun symbol. There was a tweet a couple of days ago, which actually came from NATO, which was celebrating International Women's Day, and one of the images of a female soldier, it was noticed by people on social media, actually was wearing this black sun symbol. Yes, and I mean, it, it keeps cropping up awkwardly um, in, in these kind of promotional uh, photos of soldiers who aren't uh, on the surface, you know, Azov fighters or members of kind of extreme right-wing militias. Does it mean they are part of the official Ukrainian military but have sympathy for these far-right groups? It could mean that. I mean, it's difficult to say for sure without knowing the context in which these photos were taken, but even regular Ukrainian soldiers over the past few years keep kind of embarrassingly being, you know, shown wearing uh, SS regalia or, you know, morale patches that Hark back to kind of SS symbology, so like the SS mm. you know, runes, the lightning bolt runes, or you know the SS Totenkopf. This black sun symbol. What's the actual history of that? What what does it mean? Heinrich Himmler, who was the leader of the SS, uh, he was very into all this kind of neo-pagan kind of you know very symbolic uh, esoteric uh, symbolism. So in Babelsberg Castle in Germany, uh, he he created Himmler's castle, is it? Yeah, he, he wanted it to be like a kind of Camelot for the SS. So for senior SS officers, he wanted, you know, this to be their kind of uh, nightly base where they'd you know, perform various ceremonies and, uh, you know, take over the world. Set in the floor of Wavelsburg Castle is this kind of giant marble mosaic of this symbol. It has no meaning. Like, it, it isn't some kind of prior pagan symbol. It has no meaning or context. Outside. So Himmler just designed it, did he? Or someone designed it for him, but that's where it comes from. And it's since been taken on as a symbol of esoteric Nazism. What does esoteric Nazism mean? Esoteric Nazi uh, ideology believes that Hitler 
was literally a deity. He was, he was a god, um, and it and it it worships Hitler as a kind of avatar of the, of the so divine. It's, it's a religious movement, yeah. almost. Yeah, basically. So it's like a very cult-like, um, occultic form of Nazism, right? I suppose even within a kind of Nazi or neo-Nazi subculture, this is like a very um, uh, fringe. Yeah, it's a it's a fringe belief. Even within the kind of Nazi subculture, the most extreme Nazi elements uh, within the kind of Ukrainian political sphere are exiled Russian neo-Nazis. So there's a guy called Alexei Levkin, uh, who's a leader of a group called Votan Jugend, um, which is allied with Azov. It's been sheltered, given support by Azov. Who he is an esoteric Nazi. Uh, he's a Russian ultranationalist. He's against Putin because he thinks Putin's too left-wing, essentially that Russia has too much, you know, non-white migration. Um, and they're fighting alongside Azov. You know, when I was hanging out with Azov in Kiev, Votan Jugend had a shop called Militant Zone inside Azov's headquarters. Azov's headquarters itself was a, is, is owned by the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense. It was given to them. It's in central Kiev, just off Maidan Square. And that's really become a, a hub for uh, neo-Nazi and extreme right activity from across Europe. So they do um, National Socialist Black Metal uh, music festivals, where you know bands from France and Sweden and Finland and Russia all you know go on and do their kind of uh, Nazi thing. So are these Russian nationals who are yeah Russian Ukraine? nationals, and they've been um, one of their big campaigns recently has been to get Ukrainian citizenship with Azov support because they've been fighting against Putin, they've been fighting against the Russian army in the east, but for their own essentially purely Nazi purposes. And during this campaign, do we have any idea what the Russian neo-Nazi component are doing? Are they, I mean, are they I mean, fighting I, I against assume, Russia? Yeah, I assume so. In fact, in Mariupol, they'll probably also be fighting against Ukrainian citizens who identify as Russians in the, in the East of Separatists. Is it different to other countries? This is a question we asked a previous interviewee, and mm -hmm. he said that if you look at the electoral results of the far-right political parties in Ukraine, they actually only add up to 1.6%. In total, which mm. is actually less than some individual far-right parties in other European countries have achieved. So by that evidence, he says there is no neo-Nazi problem in Ukraine. That is true. That is absolutely true. So electorally, they're very weak. All the far-right parties together can't, you know, couldn't clear the very low bar to enter the Ukrainian parliament. Right. So in terms of mass support in Ukraine, they don't have it. Like. The majority of Ukrainians would obviously kind of reject this ideology, all this kind of stuff. So in that sense, what Putin is saying is wrong. However, the problem is, it's not the correct comparison comparing them to kind of right-wing populist you know, groups um, vying for election in, in Western Europe or elsewhere in Europe. The issue is they are armed and funded by the Ukrainian state. You know, they have... They have tank units, they have artillery units, like they're very heavily equipped. I think we've actually got a, a, an image of uh, some NATO arms being handed yeah. out, or it's, a, it's a, some kind of shoulder-carried missile. Um, and the first battalion, it says here, that was being instructed on how to use it was the Azov regiment. Yeah, so here we have you know, very modern anti-tank weapons, probably provided by Britain, right? Probably the guys being... Um, Blacked out there are you know British trainers. You can see the Azov logo there, the wolf angle. There's another guy wearing the wolf angle there. So, so it's not only supported by the Ukrainian state; it's also being directly armed by Western powers. Yeah. So un until very recently, um, there were very strict rules. Uh, you know, like the United States, Canada made it very clear that no arms they would supply to the Ukrainian army would go to Azov because of their concerns about the threat as opposed to the Ukrainian state and to Ukrainian civil society. Obviously now, in the current situation, that seems to have fallen by the wayside a bit. I think there's a, there's a comparison that could be made with um, you know, jihadist groups in Syria or you know, whatever. Groups like Azov are, because they're so ideologically committed, they make very good fighters. Like you know, they are very, very so good they're fighters. useful. Extremely useful. They're extremely useful to the Ukrainian state. But they also represent a potential future threat. And I think like the jihadist problem in Syria, there's a tendency in the early stages to underplay the potential threat they represent because, you know, people in the West would ever think it, it provides uh, useful ammunition to the enemies of the broader project. So what is that threat? I mean, if there wasn't a neo-Nazi 
problem before this war, there might be afterwards because I would imagine that their popularity will increase because of this battle. It feels like if they are waging the kind of defensive efforts in these key cities of Kharkiv and Mariupol and so on, people will probably support them more after the battle is over. Yeah, you'd assume so. I mean, um, you know, you see the, you know, like the Ukrainian National Guard have been, you know, promoting Azov's efforts in Mariupol. What is the threat to Ukraine afterwards? So let's say, I think the real, after this war yeah. is over, what role will these neo-Nazi groups have? Will, and what threat do you see them posing? I suppose the way to answer that is it depends how the war ends, right? So if the war ends, as I think is likely, with uh, the Ukrainian government having to cede territory in eastern Ukraine or you know, give up its claims to Crimea, um, then groups like Azov, Azov particularly, they represent a threat to the, to the stability of the Ukrainian state because they can say, like, you know, we, we refuse to accept this. In 2019, I spoke to Elena Semenyaka, who's Azov's international director, and I asked her, you know, does Azov still see itself as a revolutionary movement? And she was very clear that in the event, she was anti-Zelensky, in the, in the event that uh, Zelensky became what she called a puppet of Moscow, then she said, you know, we have, uh, we have a plan for, for using our, our influence within the Ukrainian state to you know, prevent any loss of territory or any kind of betrayal of the Ukrainian state. So any settlement that redrew the Ukrainian boundaries in some way, mm -hmm. whether losing those provinces in the east or surrendering Crimea more long term, would probably be unacceptable to Azov and these ultranationalists. And so they might actually potentially use those arms to, I don't know, fight against the Ukrainian government. It's, a, it's almost equivalent to the IRA or the, you know, the Irish settlement in the 20s. It's that, is it, are we looking at that kind of situation? Yeah, I think so. I think that's the primary risk. I think the primary risk groups like Azov represent aren't to Russia and probably aren't to you know, Western Europe but are to the, to the stability of a future Ukrainian state. So for now, yeah, they make great fighters. You know, they're defending Mariupol against overwhelming odds, uh, very committed, you know, fighting very hard. Uh, but in a few years' time, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, there was a kind of unanimity that we, you know, we shouldn't give anti-tank weapons or certainly not, you know, anti-aircraft missiles to groups like Azov. That seems to have changed very quickly uh, over the past few weeks with not really much discussion about that. And that's something in a few years we might potentially think was a mistake. Finally, give us a sense of the scale of this. Obviously, it's not the majority of Ukrainian people or even the majority of the armed forces. Do you have any sense of numbers, both of people who support these movements, mm. members of the wider movement or even the military themselves? In absolute numbers, like it's a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of, you know, Ukrainian population. So I think the last, no one really knows for sure, but I think the last uh, reliable figures for Azov were about 2,000 active fighters at any one time. In the wider Azov movement, which includes its political party and, you know, the national corps and the national militia, which are the kind of policing auxiliary militia, uh, which helped the Ukrainian state by policing cities like Kiev and Kharkiv, uh, maybe 20,000 people maximum. We don't know how the wars changed that. Maybe they've attracted more recruits. Maybe some of those 20,000 people who were committed to the broader movement but weren't active fighters have now become active fighters. We can't really say for sure at this point. And what about Beletsky? Where's he? Last I saw him uh, was on Instagram in Kiev. Um, he seems to be having some role in the defense of Kiev. He said he was uh, recruiting in Kiev on social media. He's also been... Uh, uh, kind of releasing threats to the Chechens who are outside Kiev to come on a face and, you know, man to man. So Chechens versus Azov. Aris, thank you for explaining that to us. Always a pleasure. That was Aris Rusinos with us here in the studio at Unheard, talking us through the reality of the neo-Nazi situation in Ukraine. It's something that's hard to talk about because it's been so much part of the Russian propaganda and their reason for invading. But clearly, it is an unusual situation where there are active neo-Nazi regiments or paramilitary groups supported by the Ukrainian state. At the moment, they're being very useful. They're good fighters and they're part of the defense of the country. 
we'll see in coming months and years whether that becomes a bigger political problem. Thanks for watching. This was Unheard. Well, Harvey, there is a lot there. And just to make sure, uh, clarify one thing, that last person they were talking about was not Zelensky, but Belitsky, B-I-L-E-T-S-K-Y. Uh, just to clarify. At the beginning of the interview, he, he mentions that guy. He he was one of the founders of the Azov. So one of the other things about the clip, I don't like to include discussions of videos because you can't see them. But I did hear because their discussion is so important. And what I would recommend you do, again, is go to YouTube and search unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D, and the truth about neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Just search that. The videos, really, when you look at them, are quite chilling. He compared them to ISIS videos. And what you will see is a combination of what we saw from uh, Charlottesville and Unite the Right rally from years ago with what you would see from the 1930s and Hitler's Third Reich. So it's really troubling because he is talking about the government legitimacy uh, that these folks are given and the recognition from the Ukrainian government for these people who are clearly white supremacists, xenophobic, anti-Semitic organizations, more than just one. And we're giving them weapons. We're sharing weapons. They may not have a lot of numbers, but if the unlikely happens and the Ukrainians drive the Russians out, then the Azov Battalion and the the power of the Azov battalions and the ultra right wing are going to want to take a lot of credit and they probably deserve that credit for what they did on the battlefield, but they're going to want a lot of credit with regard to the future of Ukraine. And they're going to be a political force there. Like he said, if they lose, if they have to give up some territory to gain peace, then they're going to just go after Zelensky, the president, as a traitor, as he right. didn't fight it hard enough. Right, yeah. And so they're going to start a civil war. So there's no good outcome here. Right. For There's no good outcome here for Ukraine as a country. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's a real good outlook for Ukraine under any of the no. like, scenarios. But, but I mean... At least, okay, if you're dis uh, if, if you're destroyed and people send in a lot of stuff and you start rebuilding and you try to reestablish some um, some uh, some governmental institutions and you try to get back to some sort of um, democratic rule, which is you know not real typical of Ukraine, but you know the right wing is just going to be there and they're not going to let it happen. They're going to want control. And they're going to make the point and the people are probably going to rally around them because they were the. Yeah. Or, you know, the other ones that are going to have control is Morgan, J.P. Morgan and, you know, the Wall Streeters who have already uh, been contracted to rebuild the country by, by Zelensky. So, yeah. And um, if we and if we look as if we look historically. Where did the corporations before World War II, during and, and, and a good indication is the Spanish Civil War, where did the where did U.S. corporations fall in line behind behind Franco and the fascists? Oh yeah, that's where our that's where our corporations. So I can see them, the the corporations from J.P. Morgan and. And who are going to rebuild the country, falling right in line with the fascists, and yeah. and you know, and then we're going to have more than we can handle. There's so many things that this is just really a shit show now, based even worse than I thought 
based on what this these guys just said? Well, there was a lot that uh, in that interview that uh, Aris talked about the ideology of these people and how they consider Hitler a, a deity. Uh, it's it's pretty uh, chilling to hear his description of what this. It's basically a white supremacist, uh, you know, Aryan type ideology and there is no room for there's no room in ukraine for any russians and you know there are millions of russians ethnic russians in ukraine yeah in eastern ukraine and certainly in crimea certainly and and the other one he mentioned were the jews get a real understanding of the situation rather than this there's just a void of information out there. Especially yeah. with regard to this. And why is that? <laughs> How about sure. that New York Times article? That's oh, it's, it doesn't mean anything. It's just like the Confederate flag, for Christ's sake. Right. They're just that's just pride, right? They're yeah. Proud of who? Hitler? <laughs> the, the Holocaust? What? Yeah. We've already talked about. Uh, the mainstream media and how complicit they've been through this whole yeah entire NATO war and everything else you know and you can't read anything there's one narrative that you're going to hear and see in the post the times cable news that's all you're going to hear <laughs> and that narrative is going to whitewash the Ukrainians so that yeah, we, I mean, we maintain support and in some respects, I mean, there's there's the U.S. the the warmongers, the Blinkens, and and the Austins, who uh, point of view gets magnified by the press. But the other part of it is, we we know nothing about this war that Ukraine doesn't want us to know. That's right. What what, what we call coverage of the war is press releases from. Ukraine PR, Ukraine military, or their, you know, higher ups. Exactly. There's no actual direct, I, you know, on the ground reporting, unless it's about civilians, you know, hurt by Russian artillery. You know, I think, you know, Ukraine has run through so much artillery, you know, they've, they've run out of shells over and over. But you never hear anything about anyone hurt by that artillery. I mean, what happens to all this <laughs> that the Ukrainians used? I mean, anybody who actually thinks that Ukraine can win doesn't re- realize or remember or accept that Russia has nuclear weapons. Anyone who wants Ukraine to win has forgotten that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's what, you know. I feel like, am I a traitor for cheering for the Russian... T- defenders to hold their ground (laughs) or or do i just want to live a little longer i know along with our grandchildren i don't really want russia to get to their nuclear threshold thank you no and that's what is totally lacking it's any factual based assessment of the significance of these far-right groups in ukraine and because the united states does have a history of siding with the wrong people. You got that right. <laughs> I mean, siding with the people that are going to make just things worse. But, you know, the, the the key issue that I think people need to know is this is our taxpayer money going to support people in Ukraine who really do not hold the values that we're supposed to support and do we want to do that i guess we have a history of doing of, of supporting nazis too so well yeah for sure in spain but uh what's in the best interest of the people of ukraine are two different things so we will leave it there but i was surprised when researching uh this topic about nazis in ukraine that there is a lot on YouTube and Rumble and in print 
uh, about this. For example, we found videos like the one we just shared from the BBC and from something called the Marxist Group. Uh, and the one you heard was uh, from Unheard. U-N-H-E-R-D. Unheard. Uh, and then we shared one for Breaking Points. I also found a great article in Consortium News by Patrick Lawrence, who just talks about the difficulties of working at the New York Times and having to go along. And then beyond that, please remember to check out and support Back from the Brink. And call your congressperson and tell them to support Jim McGovern's H.R. 77. Let's do that in remembrance of President Kennedy's call for peace some 60 years ago. So with that, I asked Harvey, well, what are we going to, what do you want to do for a song today? Deutschland über alles. What? <laughs> What's that one from Cabaret? You want a song from Cabaret? It's one of the, with the Nazis. When the, the Nazis are singing, but. Oh, I see. From here. Tomorrow right. belongs to me. So I found two clips to share of Tomorrow Belongs to Me. The first one is short, but uh, kind of ominous. And the second one is the chorus from Cabaret. And as you listen, ask yourself, who is me? Is it us or them? Ah! Uh-huh. 